This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 313. It's Michelle's lucky number. Recording on Friday, May 24th, 2019. Jeff O'Neill here with Rebecca Shinsky. Coming to you from bookriot.com. It's the first summery Friday. You can feel it on the internet. You can feel oh, it in yeah. publishing. I can mm-hmm. feel it in my bones. I have questions uh, about this lucky number thing. You just tossed that out. I, I don't I don't really remember the origin of it. Now it's really TMI. No one cares about this. We can talk about it offline. You can <laughs> Call me, her. Michelle. You can, you can text her about where it comes from. Um, so I, I think most of the culture world is in Game of Thrones hangover mode. I think so. We'll get to this in maybe a little bit more in a minute, but the top of the show, our ask is, we got lots of great feedback about podcasts and stuff. Um, we'll go through here in a little bit, but we want to know, how did you feel about it? My sense, and tell me, Rebecca Shinsky, if you're, um, uh, I don't know, like voyeuristic internet experience of people's reaction to it is, people didn't love this as how this went down. Is that is that the same vibe you were getting? Yeah, I think the general vibe that I picked up was... Mad, like from yeah. mad to sort of angry about it, disappointed. Um, I heard like one person told me, well, the whole last season was kind of a mess. And so like for what it was, the ending was fine, maybe kind of satisfying, but not like the thing that they wanted yeah. it to be. Yeah, this was not a resounding success. Seems like a hard plane to land mm-hmm. on the whole. I mean, series finales of TVs are hard in any case, I think. More often than not, beloved shows end badly. Like if you just the ones I can think of, it's the the by by acclamation. I think one of the best series finale ever, and I haven't even seen it. Was Breaking Bad, but some of mm, that was mm-hmm. you kind of knew where you were going, just how you're going to get there. Yeah. Um, to correct me if I'm wrong about that, but like no, if you look at Lost or Mad Men or The West Wing or The Wire, like these are hard things to to bring into the barn. And some of the nature of it is that TV shows aren't meant to be brought into the barn. They're supposed to run for a while until they're not. They're not like other things where Game of Thrones felt like it should be different Mm -hmm. because it had an end. But as we'll talk about in a minute, its end was, I don't know, they took a a detour from the road because the road wasn't done being finished. And I can only imagine, I'd love to know, just from a meta point of view, what the writers, executive producers' experience of trying to do this was. You know, like, how hard was this crap to get right? It seems impossible. It seems, it does. I just, I don't know that they could have done something that would have felt like, yeah, they stuck the landing. Um, And because there's no, I think there's pluses and minuses to the fact that we don't know what the um, book version of the ending is going to be Mm -hmm. yet. So there's, there's nothing you're trying to live up to. Like there's no established ending that you have to live up to, but also where are you supposed to go? And we have seen interviews with George R. R. Martin recently where he's indicated like his ending is going to be different than what was in the TV show. I, we don't know how much consultation or not he had about how mm-hmm. the TV show ends. Um, Whether they so were beholden to that consultation right. at all or Yeah, was it just like, hey, George, what are your thoughts on this? Or, hey, George, tell us what to do. My, I, I think, you know, the writers of the show had a lot of control. Mm. Um, but, yeah, my overall impression was people were not stoked about it. Um, but maybe there's a little, like, liberation for the writers. And, like, nothing we can do is really going to make everybody yeah, happy. Um, and if you're George R. R. Martin, I think this gets interesting because now he doesn't have a beloved show ending that he's, like, competing with in writing the book. There's been a lot of, like, we were, I think we've even talked about, like, which version of the ending is going to be canon? Or, like, even which version of the whole story is going to be canon when you have places where the show outpaced the book? How are people going to decide? And at this point, I think it's probably just going to be, like whichever one it ends up being more well received overall. And so in that respect, he doesn't have a super high bar to clear in how he ends it, I don't think. That's an amazing point. I think what a disaster it would be for Martin if the this last season was like if the if the headlines were reading on um, Vulture are like 
is Game of Thrones the best series finale of right. all time kind <laughs> right. of stuff? If, right. If, Game if of it's Thrones just amazing like... and people are just like over the moon, yeah. I mean, good Lord, that would be tough. But yeah. this sort of, I think this is the best possible case for Martin is that people are like, boy, that was not what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Maybe I did want 1,100 pages of the last book to get through all this stuff. Cause that's what, that's one thing I'm hearing too. It felt for all the time spent on all the characters and all the things, it felt weirdly rushed apparently at huh. the end. And one thing George R. R. Martin is we'll get to in a minute. Boy, homie ain't going to rush. I tell you that no. much right now. <laughs> so if that was your, if that's your critique, uh, be careful what you wish for. Um, anyway, before let's we're get, now we're sort of tipping into the, this, that yeah. story, but so let's do the first sponsor. Okay. Tell me about our, first sponsor. our first sponsor this week is the audiobook edition of birthday by Meredith Russo. Uh, this is produced by Macmillan audio. Meredith Russo, as you probably know, is an award-winning author. This is a heart wrenching and universal story of identity, first love and fate. It's about Eric and Morgan. They've been best friends since day one. They share nearly everything together, even their birthdays. But Morgan hasn't been able to tell Eric his big secret. He knows that he's supposed to be a girl. Six years of birthdays reveal Eric and Morgan's destiny as they come together, drift apart, fall in love, and discover who they're meant to be, and if they're meant to be together. The audiobook of birthday is read by Dana Aaliyah Levinson. Refinery29 says that in addition to being exquisitely written, Birthday showcases the best of YA, its ability to instill empathy in readers. It's written by a trans author. So this is an own voices book. It gives an essential perspective into the trans experience. Meredith Russo is um, the author of If I Was Your Girl, which also is very well received. And so if you want to check this out, again, it's the audiobook version of Birthday by Meredith Russo. It's out now from Macmillan Audio. You can click your way to the link in our show notes. Thanks to them for sponsoring. All right. A lot of interesting listener feedback here um, on podcasts, paywalls, audiobooks, so on and so forth. Um, The top level aggregate takeaway, nobody is excited about (laughs) the prospect of their favorite show or shows going behind a paywall paywall for a variety of reasons i think large largely the ones we talked about mm-hmm. but i think the general sense is that they're that the way podcasts are distributed right now is kind of beautiful it's it i was thinking about this i said before on, on the the previous episode that's kind of how it's one of the few places of the internet that felt like what it could be is what it actually turned out yeah, to be yeah um and i realized that the 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 the, the counter example of that was how we thought if we could unbundle our cable subscriptions, how great it would be. We only pay for the the stations we want and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Little did we know that mm-hmm. not only would we have to pay for cable to get live sports and just the internet connection into our house, we were going to have to have Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime. Like, I'm not sure if it's better or worse or just different, but it certainly wasn't the thing was, I'm going to pick these six channels and pay 10 bucks a month for each, and my new cable content bill is 60 bucks. Yeah. I'd love to know if we pay more or less for our culture than we did 10 years oh, ago. Yeah. Surely that's out there somewhere. Yeah, I'd love to we know. We just it. need to find those numbers. Yeah, I think I think that the live sports is really the holdout that like you, you could truly cut the cord if you didn't need to watch live sports or didn't want to watch live well, but sports. But you still have your house, though. I mean, that's the thing right, about cord cutting. Like, yeah. I guess you don't need a cable subscription, but my cable subscription is not that much more than just to get the internet into my house. I don't know yeah. about yours. Yeah, um, we'll, I've looked I at live it. with someone who wants a fancy sports package. So, yeah. like, if there were the, a Netflix sports equivalent and we didn't have to have cable in order mm-hmm. to get sports, I think that would make a difference. Um, but that's it's an interesting holdout, and I've, I wonder, like, how long that can persist. But yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not surprised that people don't want their favorite shows to. So there's that a couple, and, and I didn't. No one had a. If this show went behind a paywall, that would tip me over. I mean, it's easy to say. Maybe they'd be. They said maybe I'd be wrong. Maybe I'd feel differently if something that I got in the habit of listening to went behind a paywall. Mm. But it would really have to be a cluster of yeah. things. Like one yeah, wouldn't be enough. There's just so much to listen to that. I mean. And I think this is true, like for for any show, including the one we're recording right now. That like if the and then we know it of TV shows. Like you think, oh, Friends is ending. 
what am I going to watch now that Friends is over? Like, you know, I remember having that feeling and I missed Friends for like, I don't know, a week. And then (laughs) then there was other TV that came in. I had that same experience with, you know, Parks and Rec ending and Breaking Bad and Game of, not Game of Thrones, Veep and um, Mad Men and like all these shows that I've loved, but they go away and new things come in to fill Mm. their space. And I just think that there's so much content that I don't think anything really exists that is so special that the absence of it would be felt in a, an enduring enough way to be like, yes, it's worth it for just this one thing to go find it behind the paywall. Like I just, nothing we do is that magic. I I mean, there's some, I can imagine that, like I said before might work, but um, you know, if this American life went all behind it, you know, the Gimlet stuff, I'd be curious to see, I'd be curious to hear what their market research says. Like, do they have a percentage of people in a survey to reply all that said, if this was only on Spotify, would you listen to it that way? Ah, mm. Interesting. I, I mean, I'd be fascinated to yeah. know. And I think uh, even then it, you'd have to take like, well, if 10% of people said they would do it, you'd have to assume yeah. that really only a portion of that 10% right. would actually do it. Yeah. Actually converting them is a yeah. whole, whole mm-hmm. different deal. A couple yeah. of corrections, emendations, um, filling in the blanks. Um, we said that there hasn't really been a Netflix, a podcast, and that's where we're trying to be. A couple people wrote in to say that Stitcher Premium has tried to do something like mm. this of bringing um, one. I'm not sure about people using names, but one of one someone who wrote in said they pulled in one of my favorite podcasts behind the paywall for the new season. It actually, made me so resentful that I stopped listening to that podcast <laughs> altogether, which oh, I boy. actually kind of understand. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can kind of get that. Like, it's a little bit of a bait and switch. I think that's yep. another thing to think about too. It's one thing to start a like if we started a second podcast that was only on Luminary and it was, I don't know we we've, we like we we like this new podcast or it's new to us Rewatchables on the yeah. Ringer we recommend where they go talk about old movies and you drop in for one you like. Let's say we did one of that, but we just talked about book adaptations, like we or book book related movies, and it was a spinoff of this show, and that was behind a paywall. That might work, or or at least it wouldn't piss off your audience. You want a little bit more. You want something in right. addition. You want the premium. You want premium, deluxe, ultra, business class, elite, diamond, that kind of a situation that people could get behind. But I think people following you when you've had it for free, you've developed a relationship. It's part of your cultural consumption pattern to say this thing that's been free. Now you got to pay and you got to sign up for this thing. And it's ongoing. Yeah. I think people I think, hate that. I think that bait and switch part is really critical to the reception of it. We had these discussions eight years ago about the launch of Book Riot. Like before yeah, Book Riot right. started, we didn't necessarily have like, we weren't sure there'd be like ads on the first day, but it was like, well, there's going to be ads. You know, this website right. is going to be supported by ads. When we developed the podcast, it was going to be supported by ads. Our newsletters were going to have sponsors in them. And so we needed those things to be in place from day one, or we thought it's better to have those things Mm -hmm. in place from day one people who interact with anything you make are used to the presence of advertising and that just feels better than oh i was used to seeing this thing with no ads on it i was used to listening to this show with no ads on it or to accessing it for free and now all of a sudden i have to pay for a thing i'm used to getting for free like it's that switch of i used to get this for free and now i don't or i used to get this without ads on it and now i don't that i think people really don't like and i understand like as a user of stuff Mm -hmm. i don't like that experience I would rather know upfront, like, do you need my money for a thing? And then yeah. I can decide if it's worth it. Once you get attached and it does feel it just, well, that you've agreed feeling. to the deal, right? right I've agreed right. to the deal that I listen to some ads for most podcasts and I get the content for free and I can listen to on demand and all the other things that are great about it. So there's that. Another thing that Spotify apparently does have some audiobooks. I did not know this. I'll put a link in the show I didn't notes. Either. Hmm. Um, they've, they've merged the, they used to have a category specifically, for audiobooks, now it's under the category Word. There's a profile here. Hmm. Let's just say it's not top-level navigation stuff for the Spotify <laughs> app, but they have first chapters of some audiobook titles, and you can click through to the entire audiobook. I did this, hmm. and like you could listen to... It looks like you could listen to... There's a bunch of stuff here, but you can listen oh, to... There's, again, yeah. there's obviously some um, I'm looking uh, at public right domain, now. but like mm-hmm. there's uh, The Hunger Games... The, the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I mean that's public domain, so that's a little um, whatever. It's you're not looking at. I think the navigation of this is garbaggio, yeah. um, but it's here, and so they're definitely thinking about it. They're not using the book metaphor at all. Where like you're mm-hmm. looking at covers of books, like 
It's all categories. And then you're going into, and it looks like a playlist, which each chapter is a track of a song. It's like, my mental, our mental models of how we listen to audiobooks, or audiobooks listeners, this is, this is not. Oh, this is, yeah. Not I just clicked it. into their, there is a playlist called audiobooks. And it's like The Invisible Man uh, Part One, The Invisible Man Part Two. Bartleby the Scrivener, read yeah. by Laurence Olivier. Right. Um, so the Secret strange. Garden is four parts. The Great Gatsby is four parts. Yeah, that's what an interesting, and by interesting, I mean inscrutable <laughs> decision. I mean, they have some business agreements. These aren't all, like I'm looking at an Elton John biography by David Buckley. Okay, this is clearly yeah. not public domain. But I also can't learn any more information about it. When did it come out? It's The, uh, the, the length is 318 songs because each <laughs> chapter is... <laughs> or like there's a playlist here of women's lit mm. and it's classic short stories okay so that makes a little bit more sense because each yeah. track is a different classic short story um but also mixed in with this is like a playlist of guided meditations a playlist of scary stories place a playlist where you learn um foreign languages there's italian french and chinese there's one of love poems there's one of jane austen there's one of science fiction. Like, why isn't each album an audiobook with just the tracks that belong to that uh, I, I don't particular know. book? Presumably, I don't there's know. a reason, but I don't yeah. know it. Uh, some of this stuff is a little, I, I don't know. Like, I'm looking at the audiobooks for children's, mm. and one of them is um, Oh, Captain, My Captain by Walt Whitman. Like, oh, boy. Hmm, I'm not sure that's. I don't think that's so. That's a little rough. A little, you know, a little, I don't know what age the assassination of. Uh, of a president written by um, in free verse is all right. I mean, this assumes that the children know that's what that poem is about. (laughs) So, I mean, there's a Lois Lowry title, but it's so this is um, interesting. There's a playlist of Christmas stories. An afterthought at best. Oh yeah. Yeah. I can see it's there. It's there. Probably this playlist of Christmas stories is the most, I don't know. Not useful. It's the one I'm most likely to click if I had mm. kids around and I was like, listen to this Where's recording that one? of is, The Night see. Before Christmas. It's, is the um, Child's Christmas in Wales in there? Do you happen to see? Because um, that's that's a stone cold classic. Where was it? Um, there's a um, readings from Dylan Thomas. Anyway. Oh, I that's don't it. See that's one, it. Dylan yeah. Thomas. That's yeah, probably yeah. it. Um, oh, yeah. It is it is one of the tracks in the, I think it's one of the tracks in the Dylan Thomas playlist. There's an but interesting one. They have, a anyway. play, they have a playlist of st- audiobooks for running. Huh. But I don't know. I don't know. Well, anyway, it's there. They're thinking about it. Am I, here's the thing. Here's the question for you. Is it better that that's how it's deployed or if it weren't deployed at all? Which would give you more confidence <laughs> in Spotify's interest and ability to make audiobooks viable on? Um, I would be more confident if it weren't deployed at all. Yeah, I think yeah. I feel the same way. But it's there. <laughs> it's but it's there. there. I thought, uh, let's see, one more listener feedback sort of thing. Um, I, I guess that was it. I guess there was another person saying Stitcher Premium uh, was a thing. So let us know. Um, you know, if that's fine, it's interesting. Go look at Spotify. See, see whatever you think of it. I don't think you're going to be completely thrilled, but if you're already using Spotify and you're interested in, I guess, especially it looks like it'd be good for um, public domain works. Yeah. At least it's there. It seems um, like if you're, you know, poking around and there's like you have some space to fill where it's like, I, maybe I'll listen to a poem now or like I'm on oh. a road trip and maybe I'll listen to a children's story or something like you could use Spotify to fill that space. But it doesn't meet the way that we typically consume audiobooks no. of like, I want this title. Let me shop for that title. Right. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. No, it's it's in. not at all title oriented, not yeah. by any stretch of the imagination, which Spotify itself is not. You know, if if the metaphor is the title for books, the metaphor, the equivalent metaphor is albums. And mm. Spotify has completely deprecated the idea of an album. Like, I like to listen to albums. Me too. And it's hard to find what's a full album and what's a new release that's a single track. And you go to an artist and you really have to dive down to see all discography and blah, blah, blah to get to the album level. So I can see how mapping that model of people want to listen to songs. The song mm-hmm. is the atomic unit of music. 
where is a book is the atomic unit of books, which now feels like a tautology, but is not clear from their UI that they understand. Um, the <laughs> yeah, that's. A, I think that's a really great point is that we do you can take a song off an album and just listen to the song and unless yeah. the album is doing something really conceptual you get the entire point of the song by itself mm. it doesn't have to be placed in context but just a random chapter taken out <laughs> of context from a book that, that it does not stand they are not no. analogous no not analogous at all um all right so that's the feedback thank you guys so much for listening in let's go back to george of the rrs of the martins i don't is this George feeling left out? Tell me, Rebecca. T- tell me what this is. I don't know. He, why so he, do this? <laughs> why, George? Why? why? He has set himself a deadline for the penultimate Game of Thrones book, The Winds of Winter, not even the final one, um, to finish it by August of 2020. And he has said if he hasn't finished it by then, then his fans should imprison him in a small cabin until it is done. Um, it's not impossible for me to buy the idea of some George R. R. Martin fans kidnapping him and putting him in a cabin and making him finish a book. That's like an interesting example for him to offer. I don't know why this story that we're looking at came out yesterday. So this is after... The finale, maybe he was waiting to see how the finale would be received. Because I guess in the universe where the finale is very well received, he could just sort of like run this, he could just run the clock out on Mm. finishing the books and just never do it. Um, If it's like, well, I'm never going to be able to compete. You know Um, what? They did exactly what I was going to do. Peace. Yep. (laughs) Or just like... I'm still working because if we're used to anything in the world of books, we're used to George R. R. Martin delaying his deadlines. I know death taxes and not getting a new George R. R. Martin book. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of, and he's had a deadlines before. I, I yeah, just don't like, know. Does... And he's inviting the thing that you and I have sort of come around to saying chill out about. He's like, yeah. uh, if I, he says, if he has not finished the novel by August 2020, so I guess March isn't, or August 2020. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I had March as the deadline. Anyway, then fans should imprison him in a yep. small cabin mm-hmm. until it's done. Don't say, George, don't. Don't yeah. say that. We've spent years, not like you and me, just us, but like the yeah. bookish internet has spent like years talking about how fans don't have like the right to the next thing. We're not entitled to fort, like to pressure mm-hmm. uh, creators to do stuff. And yeah, I don't love inviting that but also like why should we believe that this deadline means no something different to, to him There's no reason to. <laughs> you know I, i'm not critiquing him at all here i just I'm, I'm more thinking from like i don't want him to spiral yeah. and have a really bad experience and also like, like i, don't I just don't understand the point like yeah. we're the book has been delayed a jillion times already no one is currently sitting around with a red circle around a particular day when that no. book is supposed to come out waiting for it like just let people continue to wait until it's done and then make a big announcement that you've turned in the manuscript and a publication date has been set and the pre-orders are live and let the internet rejoice like i just don't understand especially like I don't know. Hope springs eternal. People do the same things over and over, expecting different results. Like, who knows what's going on here? But like, wh- I want to know what's going on in his mind that he's like, sure, he can meet this deadline when he's had to delay other ones repeatedly. Um, yeah. I just, it's confusing. It would be one thing if he said the publication date is X. Right, right. Right? Yeah. Like that. The book is done. Here come, Here it comes. But it, it feels to me a little bit. He's feeling like he's a wallflower at the party at his own birthday party with the end of Game of Thrones, and this mm-hmm. is a thing he can do. And maybe like, oh, you didn't like the finale yeah. to the TV show, but don't worry, I'm coming back soon. Don't forget about me. Yeah, yeah. He said, I don't know. There, it is interesting. He said, um, I'm working in a very different medium than the show. Uh, don't forget that they had six hours for this final season. I expect these last two books of mine will fill 3,000 manuscript pages between them, and if more pages and chapters or scenes are needed, I'll add them. So maybe if you, if you felt this sucker was rushed, just you wait, because I'm going to bog you down in a morass of detail <laughs> from which you will likely never escape. I, I can totally that, uh... psychologically understand his, his desire to do this. I just don't want to—don't write any checks that you're going to have to cash. 
Just do the just, the, this just really, do the thing. I'm yeah. very worried about this. Yes. This well, you know, there's this great Amy Poehler quote from her book, Yes Please, where she's like, I don't want to deal with people who talk about the thing. I want to deal with people who do the thing. Yeah, that's interesting. And you know, George R. R. Martin has done the thing. He's delivered a bunch of books. We know that he can do it, but like I I feel the same way. Like I don't need to know in advance how many pages you think a book is any author. You think a book right. is going to take or how long you think it's going to take you to write it. Like I'm content to sit here in my knowledge slash hope of like, let's take someone that I love. Let's take Toni Morrison. Like mm-hmm. I can sit here with the knowledge or hope that there will be another Toni Morrison novel in Toni Morrison's lifetime. I don't need a press release that she's working on a book and here is when it's probably going to be due and here's how long she thinks it's going to be. I don't need to get attached to anything and then get my heart broken. Like this seems unfair to do to his fans. I understand that it's sort of like it solves an immediate need, but it creates a future potential problem. Everybody can get attached now to this notion of when they're going to get the thing. And then it's worse if they don't get it on time than if they never knew that that was the deadline. Yeah. Yeah. And and maybe this is all he has to motivate himself. Like there's that part too. Like mm. the publisher wouldn't. He the, the books have such. He has such leverage that he doesn't have to meet any publisher deadline. Right. He's financially set. He doesn't meet any financial deadline. All he has to motivate himself is internal motivation, and it feels like setting this external deadline might be a either conscious or subconscious way of saying, George, come on already. Like, what can I do to myself? It's like telling people you're going to quit smoking. It helps quitting smoking by telling people you're going to quit smoking. It helps getting out and exercising Mm -hmm. by telling people you're going to get an exercise. Maybe this is like literally, he actually thinks by doing this, it will help him get done. Yeah, maybe so. Like maybe this is his way of trying to create some accountability. Mm -hmm. The thing that it really makes me wonder is like, I know he's under contract for these books, so in that respect, he has to write them. But does he want to? Like, does he still want to do this? He could get out of it. Yeah. He could get out of it, I'm sure. He's got HBO money to pay back whatever mm-hmm. advance, assuming they would actually right. the advance But, like, back. then imagine the PR crap they storm. Ne- they would never do that. They're making money off the other books. They, they wouldn't they wouldn't try to claw back whatever the oh i don't think they would but like the um sort of the reception by his readers if he were just to be like you know what i'm tired (laughs) i'm not gonna finish these books um i don't i think that's that would be such a loss of face that if he's having some hesitation and now we're just purely in the land of speculation but like Mm -hmm. if he's burned out which this is a lot of words to have written. Dude might be burned out. Um, I can imagine really not feeling like he's in a place where he could just acknowledge that and be like, I'm burned out. I'm done. The books are like the, the books are ending where they are. We're going to let the show stand on its own. Sorry. Like, I just think the outcry no. from readers no, to that I don't would think not he, be worth he, he's, it. I don't think he has that in him. Like yeah. he wants, yeah. whatever's going on with this is not about like straight up fatigue. It might be about some other kind of fatigue mm. or anxiety or something else or just Maybe he's writing 3,000 pages and it takes a while. I mean, that's 10 10 300-page novels, I mean, because that's how math works. But, like, (laughs) you wouldn't expect, you know, even someone who publishes a lot to write 10 books in seven years. Um, So maybe maybe that kind of reframing would be helpful. He'd be like, you know what? I'm writing these, and this is 1,500 were this is gonna be fifteen hundred pages for this first book. Think of it as writing five books. Seven years ain't so bad right. for that. No, I'm serious. Like, no, no, I'm it. agreeing. Like, yeah, you, yeah I was you also gonna get it. You gonna get it when like, you gonna get it. But it's like, gonna be if, long and it takes a long time. What if he just did them as ten three hundred page novels? Oh, part part one, part two, part three, part four, part five. Sort uh-huh. of thing. Yeah, I could I could certainly understand that. It would be weird, I guess, but is it weirder than this situation? Probably, probably not. <laughs> yeah, when this is the water, you're already swimming Yeah, in. that's right. You know, out of the frying pan into a series of slightly smaller fires, I guess, um, <laughs> would be interesting. Anyway, so there we go. I, yeah. I, I, Good I'm luck not sure to you, George. I, wanted, I want it to work out well for him and the fans and everyone else. This just makes me nervous of like, mm-hmm. this is like... George R. R. Martin announces future letdown is my onion headline for this. <laughs> oh. Right. oh, I'm wishing that I didn't think that was true. Yeah, that's <laughs> the worst. Yeah. That's the uh, the worst case and most likely case based on past 
performance with these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> good Godspeed, George. We're pull- I'm pulling for you. I really, I really am. And I've never mm-hmm. read a word of any of it. Um, <laughs> I'm now more invested in the meta story than the story itself. All right, this is your follow up. I don't know what this. I mean, I know what it is, but I don't know what you got here. Oh yeah, not a lot of details here. I think um, on a show a couple weeks ago when I was out, you and Jen talked about um, Baker and Taylor was ending their. Uh, wholesale business distributing directly to independent bookstores. And that's been a shakeup for indies about where are their books going to come from? In addition Mm. to like, they have Ingram still distributing and a lot of independent bookstores work directly with publishers anyway. So just by way of quick follow up, there have been a few pieces from Publishers Weekly noting that some publishers are now making special deals and special arrangements available for indies for Mm. direct purchasing um, in order to sort of smooth this out, keep the trains running on time, keep books in bookstores, especially like it's May and indie bookstores are now placing their orders for what they're going to have in stock during the holiday season. Um, so that really matters. Um, Scholastic is instituting a holiday express ship program that starts on June 1st. Um, they're doing some special um, backlist stock offers as well. Uh, and HMH Books um, has set an indie media or has set an indie plan. HMH Books and Media has set an indie plan that includes expedited account setup for accounts that were working with Baker and Taylor. They get a special offer on their first order. There's a waived minimum order quantity, free outbound shipping, and some other things. And those are offered until October 1st. Um, so they're hoping to do sort of a short term thing at HMH, it looks like, to convert some indies to work directly with them. Um, And I'm sure there's some stuff going on with some of the other publishers as well, but those are just the two pieces that I've seen a follow-up there. Um, It sounds like the day that the news dropped about Baker and Taylor doing this, it was a big sort of Mm. like you know, clutching the chest, like what, how are we going to navigate this? I think it was pretty complex um, for a lot of indie stores, but publishers getting involved to try to make it easier so that everybody can keep selling books. Seems like it's not going to be like a sky is falling big deal that it seemed like it might be initially. Yeah. I was in New York for some meetings um, with publishers uh, and this came up a couple of times. Mm. I was just asking how they were they were dealing with it. and they're like they're kind of holding their breath a little bit because you know there's they do some of their own as you say but also there's th- there's the specter of like what they're really worried about is like Ingram is now the biggest book distributor yeah. that's not named Amazon so they need that to be healthy so publishers but on also they need it to not put all their chips um on the table with it's just very complicated mm-hmm. um it can it feels unstable in that regard, Ingram is in a wonderful negotiating position with publishers and independent bookstores yeah. and other bookstores and other places. It's not just bookstores that get books through Ingram, I should say, too. Um, but on the other hand, Ingram has to be mindful of it's, it feels like everyone's competing with everyone right here. That's, I guess, that's the part I came mm-hmm. out with is like there's no natural ongoing alliances except that a couple of people like the bookstores need Ingram not to play dirty and the publishers need Ingram not to play dirty. Because they're all kind of in it together against the big, big green A. Yeah, and um, I was going to say, but all, like I was to that point, we know that um, publishers feel like they can only offer independent bookstores certain like yeah. deals that are good up to a certain point. Because if they offer them something that's like sweeter than what the publisher offers, Amazon, Amazon gets mad and magically your buy buttons mm-hmm. disappear. Um, and the reverse is true as well, that the publishers are concerned about their, if they seem to be favoring their relationships with Amazon, what happens in their relationships with the independent bookstores? It's all yeah. very tricky. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Is this the, sometimes ask my question of this, is this the, is this the kind of thing that happens when things are stabilizing or destabilizing? Mm. And I think the answer here is this is the kind of things that happens when things are destabilizing. But. Yeah, I think so. I've been thinking more about like how much, I mean, this is kind of an insider. This is a little more inside baseball story than we tend to mm. do on this show. And so I've been wondering also like, is this going to affect readers like people in publishing are interested in this it's a big deal because there were only two big distributors and now there's only one um with ingram being left and so like the questions that it raises for i guess what could happen with readers is if ingram changes the terms with your favorite independent bookstore and they don't get as good of discounts then your independent bookstores margins get even thinner and they're working on pretty thin ones to begin with and so that's a potential sort of reader facing outcome or consequence of um, some of this. So I've been thinking about that. It doesn't sound to me like there's any reason to, there's no, um, 
like the the alarm bells aren't ringing yet. Um, Ingram hasn't done anything yet that would indicate they're going to like really try to take advantage of this. Um, presumably they also are aware of the situation that independent bookstores are in and what the margins look like and how far they could push or, or not. But, um, I would think at some point we'll see something that affects indies that then has a trickle down to affecting the customer. But that's what I'm the margins are. The margins are so thin, you know, that reminds me real quick, just in terms of the, um, the grand landscape of Amazon's entree onto the world and increasing and now dominance, I would say. Yeah. I saw this week that it's this is the 10-year anniversary of Amazon publishing existing, oh, you know, wow. Amazon publishing its own books, which it's kind of a nice moment to look at that because, you know, when that was announced and in the years since, the idea was like, oh my gosh, they're such a big distributor. If they got an, If they just sort of verticalize, right, become mm-hmm. every part of the chain, look what they can do. And they had the list of Amazon provided publishers weekly. I think I don't have it in front of me. I'll, maybe I'll try to find a link to put in the show notes of the ten best selling Amazon titles since uh, of the, the first ten mm-hmm. years. And there's nothing really that you could call a mainstream hit. Like the number one one is Beneath the Scarlet Sky, which I've seen. They've done some advertising with us, I should say. But it's not the kind of thing you can talk about people with. Like, oh, remember beneath the, you know, like mm-hmm. it's nothing like that. Well, and so it is a reminder that Amazon doesn't always win, doesn't always yeah. know what they're doing, doesn't always work out right. And that it doesn't, that it had, I mean, I don't know if their P&L is in the black or what they're trying to do with it, but it has not become even a mid-level publisher in terms of mindshare uh, and title yeah. recognition. And I think that has to do with, all the complexities around Amazon and its position in the publishing world and people's perceptions of Amazon yeah. and sort of distrust of Amazon. But also like if you're an agent, like, I don't know, I know a lot of literary agents and I don't know any who are going to their clients and being like, okay, so we're starting your manuscript by shopping it to Amazon publishing. Mm. Uh, mm. Because if you, you know, you publish a book with Amazon publishing, you're already down a bunch of independent bookstores who aren't going to stock it. Maybe yeah. Barnes and Noble doesn't maybe. stock it. You know, yeah, like maybe. your retail, options get trickier um, if you publish with Amazon publishing. And like, there's just this sort of Amazon uses books as a loss leader. They don't seem to, and and they always have like mm-hmm. Amazon began as a bookseller with the intention of using them as a loss leader. And that conveys a certain value or not that you place on books and literature and the written word. And publishing is really averse to acknowledging the fiscal parts of it being a business to acknowledging the commodification of the art. Um, and there's, you know, folks in, in most traditional publishers. And I have, I know folks at Amazon publishing who love books. Like they are yeah, book people. That's right. It's not that they don't care about books and they're just in the books for the money. Like nobody is just in the books for the money. Um, but I think that um, it's tough for Amazon as a brand to sell the notion of like, trust us with your book, come here with your book, we love your book. Um, We just value books for the sake of books Mm. in the way that agents care about books and the traditional publishing cares about books as kind of this noble calling that we've talked about. So I think they have some perception stuff to try to overcome to get people to to get authors and agents to want to take their titles there. And then w- even once that happens, they have some distribution hurdles um, because not everybody's willing to stock an Amazon title. Yeah. And I think the flip side of that is you also don't have any goodwill, I think, largely in the wider book world around your titles that reviewers and editors of, you know, editorial mm-hmm. coverage places and you know, like kind of the secondary gatekeepers of the world, not the editors and agents part, but once the book is in the world, who are the people that can draw attention and amplify, um, you know, buzz, you know, the, the merchants of buzz, so to speak, mm-hmm. have no, at best, are neutral, I would say, at yeah. best, are neutral about Amazon. They are not in, I'm, I'm going to speak very broadly here, interested in helping an Amazon title find an audience and reader. Yeah. They're just not think, in, they just don't want to do it. And, yeah. I, and I think I understand why mm-hmm. it's nothing against the authors. I don't even know if it's the kind of books that Amazon publishing puts out. It's just the story. It just feels like feeding Skynet mm-hmm. to some degree. Yeah. And people yeah, yeah. are not that, that's that felt reality. I think does affect how 
books can can mm-hmm. or can catch on in the wider marketplace. Yeah, that's such a great point. Like, and it makes me think about I think about I don't know, ten years ago, whenever Water for Elephants came out. Yeah, it right. was, and that was an Algonquin title. It was a surprise bestseller, and. Algonquin very publicly has credited the bestsellerness of that book with the hand selling and word of mouth recommendation that began in independent bookstores. And that was it, it happened and it was huge. And of course, the book broke out and was like the book club book of the year. And yeah. it, it was huge in paperback when it came out. And then they made the movie and people were buying it in you know, big chain bookstores as well. Um, but it started in independent bookstores. Algonquin credits independent bookstores with that. And they were able to go back a year or two later with another title. I wish I could remember which one it was now. It was in my, like early in my blog. I remember life. this story. I remember yeah. This story. And they were able to go back to the indie bookstores and be like, we think that this title has the potential to do the same thing that Water for Elephants did if y'all get behind it. And it didn't go as big, but um, in my memory, it went bigger than it probably would have if independent bookstores had not rallied around it and made the effort to hand sell it and get it out there. And I don't think that Amazon, actually, I believe, like I'm pretty sure Amazon does not have that same goodwill or that same clout. Like even if a book did really well, Amazon doesn't have, as you're saying, like a connection to a community of people who are motivated to help Amazon continue to be successful yeah. in the way that in this case, it was independent booksellers, but like other titles have been sort of credited to bloggers like that book blogging made a certain book go big. Those bloggers, as we both were, um, had connections and desire to help support a publisher to help an author that we cared about really break out. And yeah, there's nobody sitting around being like, you know, Amazon needs my help. No, no. And you know, um, Again, I will find a link to put in the show notes, but the the genres are mostly mystery, thriller kind of things, which tend to do better in digital and it doesn't, you know, it tends to do better mass market types of things. It's not a mid-list literary fiction title. Those are the, you know, no shade on Water for Elephants or anything like that. Mm. That's that's what that book was initially and then Mm -hmm. it became a, a, you know, breakthrough commercial hit. Um, But there are limits to brute forcing through marketing and algorithms and recommendations and things on Amazon for its own titles. There still seems to be a limit. It's not just a machine where Mm -hmm. they can crank out hit after hit that become part of the cultural consciousness. Hasn't worked that way. And and interestingly, I think, you know, between, um, uh, between transparent man in the high castle, much Mm. more success on the video side, of having yeah. things that people have heard of. Maybe they're just higher profile in general. People watch more video than they read books. But the Amazon Prime side of the story um, and video seems to be much more um, successful if Mindshare is the rubric mm-hmm. um, by which we're judging it. Let me do another sponsor here before we get to we, – we spent more time than yeah. I thought uh, <laughs> talking about some of these. Uh, not surprisingly, I should say, Metascale um, things. This, this sponsor is the guest book. By Sarah Blake. A lifetime of secrets, a history untold. No, it's a simple word uttered on a summer porch in 1936, and it will haunt Kitty Milton for the rest of her life, and its consequences will ripple through the Milton family for generations. Moving through three generations and back and forth in time, the guest book asks how we can remember and what we choose to forget, and tells the story of a family and country that buries its past in quiet until the present calls forth a reckoning. This is from Sarah Blake. It's on sale May 7th, so it's been out, and it's a great summer read. Uh, Sarah Blake also wrote wrote The Postmistress, if you read that. But this is the guest book, Three Generations Haunted by a Dark Family Secret. That's the guest book by Sarah Blake. Go check it out. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Speaking of things that didn't ever turn into things, but are still around. <laughs> oh, that's just such a gentle and also harsh burn. <laughs> there is a new version of a Nook. Can you believe it? A Nook Glowlight Plus. There's a new version, and it got covered <laughs> on like TechCrunch and the Virgin stuff. I guess they're looking for content or whatever. Um, but <laughs> looking for content. Look, no, or I mean, whatever. There, or whatever. There's an. I'm not. I wasn't sure we'd ever get a new Nook. 
Um, it sounds like it's a pretty good device. Some people really like their Nook in addition to just it not being yeah. Amazon. Uh, so the new version, it's bigger, 7.8-inch screen. Um, it's 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 svelter. Uh, it's a little bit – it had been bulky apparently in the past. I haven't, I haven't mm-hmm. held a Nook in my hand in a long time. Um, really, I'm all iPad right now for my digital reading, Same. I should say. iPad Pro, the news ones are great, especially if you like comics. Um, it's $199, 8 gigabytes of built-in storage, also waterproof. Um, I don't know. Is there? Is this anything? Is this something or nothing? I don't know what to make of this. I'm a little befuddled. Yeah, uh, I think I when you're asking that question, you it's already nothing. know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. That's probably true. But they're making new ones. Um I don't know. I don't know. What I, to, to this is one this. I'm curious. I know when we've talked about Nook in the past that we've heard from listeners who have loved their Nook e-readers. Yeah. Like, are you excited that there's another one? Will you now make your next e-reader purchase a Nook instead of mm-hmm. something else? Um, I'm. I have to say, I am surprised by the persistence of just the dedicated e-reader. Like the devotion that people have to it, that it yeah. keeps them alive. Because I'm also um, an iPad reader, and I have been for years. And as much as I loved the idea of if I just have a device that's an e-reader and I can't also like go check Instagram on it, I'll stay, I'll be less distracted or whatever. Um, and I'll just read books on the thing. But then in my mobile life, I wanted something that I could like watch Netflix on when I was yeah. traveling, you know, and that's a thing that an iPad is great for. And I'm not going to pack an iPad and a separate e-reader when I'm going to do a thing. Maybe my use case, like my set of needs for, and I do travel a lot, like maybe my use case is different, but I'm really surprised that e-readers that are only e-readers continue to like actually stand alone. Yeah. I think, I think if you are largely, maybe even exclusively an e-book reader and you are, and you are connected to one buying platform, it makes sense. Like if you're really all in on an ecosystem, like if you buy only, if you read largely eBooks from Amazon, a Kindle's great. You buy them right there; they're all there. It's easy to stick around. But like you, the iPad has gotten good enough, and I use an iPad Pro, the 2018 model, the smaller one. I don't remember the dimensions, and that sucker is light. It has really good battery life. It can do some other things when I'm not just reading a book. I can do Audible and my podcasts and my Libby's. I just my, my reading life is too diverse digitally even mm-hmm. to have a reader an e-reader that even yeah. though it's lighter and has better battery life but you know what the iPad screens are high res now and they're backlit I don't yeah. need a lamp in the middle of the, you know I can read it next to Michelle mm-hmm. when it's night and I don't have to turn my lamp on um I don't have to worry about you know if I'm traveling or somewhere else where am I going to sit down and get back you know a lamp on for this thing now these glow light ones have back readers too but it just it's it's become the thing where it doesn't quite do enough. It doesn't. There's mm-hmm. no part of it that's really that much better than my iPad that I would ever choose it. Like, what is better? Battery life? It's lighter? I, I guess that's it. Yeah, I'm making know. a confused face. Yeah. So if you are a ded- if you have an e-reader, a dedicated e-reader, a Kindle, mm-hmm. a Nook, a Kobo, I'm not even sure what else you would have at this point. And you tell us about it and why you don't use an iPad. Because also the prices come down of iPads too. I think that was another thing initially too. But like mm-hmm. you can get a pretty good a standard 9.7 inch iPad for 329 And this Nook Glowlight Plus is a lot cheaper at 199 But that additional $129 is a lot of machine yeah. um, for, for relatively speaking. So I'd be curious to hear um, what people are interested in. Let's do one more story. You want to do Hero I- of the Week? I, what do you want to do? You know, I think we have to talk about Bill. All right. We got to talk. Right. Okay. All right. So All right. it's like the second most wonderful time of the year, I guess, because there's another Bill Gates recommended reading video. Incredible. Um, it is not him driving through a possibly fake Christmas tree lot looking at giant versions of books, but it is an animated acid trip. 
It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> I'm starting to be excited about these reading lists, not because of what's on them, but just because no. of like, what is, how is Bill Gates going to package his next reading list? And the animated acid trip is the solution here. But I do have to say, I am disappointed in Bill. He's getting, I am too. He's getting a bad job, Bill, because this list of five books is all white people and only one of them is a woman. And Bill Gates, number one, is woker than that. And number mm. two should have better advisors around him like these this is on gates notes which is his personal website like i believe that bill gates has the skills obviously to update his own blog but i have a hard time believing that he's the one updating his own blog so like i'm gonna assume that he put this list together and somebody was responsible for getting this list out in the world and that person also failed to be like hey bill why all the white people Uh, it's also not that interesting the christmas uh, list was pretty interesting yeah that that's true so we can separate maybe the me- the, the the medium from the message a little sure. bit, mm-hmm. um, but the medium <laughs> it's <such> on <laughs> it's animated and the way the book covers sort of explode and reassemble back into the background is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Like whoever's mm-hmm. doing these should do book trailers for publishers. Like this is yes. way more interesting than any book trailer I've ever seen. I, There's some real production value to I these. Can, like and look, there's 171,000 views on YouTube, which. I don't it th- this is a huge loss and there's no ads or anything like the questions are even more intense about how much does it cost why are we doing this <laughs> if it- the simplest answer maybe is the, the right one. He just likes doing it. He just it. likes it. And also like 171,000 views is 170,000 more views than most book trailers get. <laughs> no, that that's right. It's just it is it's bananas. Um, so go check that out and give us some recs for Bill. What do you mm. think Bill should be reading? I'd love to know. Though I do want to read this Jared Diamond. This the new Jared Diamond called up people, but that's a second, a second, uh, a second thing. Um, amazing, 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 amazing to to see how much it would be. Also, if you know, if you watch this video, you know anything about video production and can yeah. tell us how much it cost. <laughs> I mean, I know computer animation has gotten a lot less expensive than it once was. Are we talking five grand, ten? You could tell me any number between five and a hundred grand, and maybe more, maybe more. Mm-hmm. It's only a couple minutes long, and, and I would believe you. Just I just don't know enough about what animation um, actually costs. But I love that he does these. I love the production values. I wish the thing that was in the highly produced video, I was a little more excited uh, mm-hmm. about. Um, but you know, that's. There's our note. There's our note. There's our, uh, if we were the execs in the Bill Gates production <laughs> meetings, which certainly happened for a video like this, by the way. <laughs> it did. You know that multiple people signed off on this thing. What we need is the Obama-Gates like team up, Voltron style, where we get Obama's <laughs> picks with Gates' production value. Yes. We got to get those Obama reading lists off of Facebook. Off of te- plain text and Facebook, which are fine. But we've got, you know, we've got a, we've got a, a fully operational, uh, bespoke vanity production house mm-hmm. for Gates just sitting there. Uh, certainly, we could use that to to wider appeal. Um, anyway, that's our show this week. As always, you can find links to all of the stuff we talked about, eh, most of it, at bookride.com/slash/listen. <laughs> Emails podcast at bookride.com. We want to know: Do you use a dedicated e-reader, and why? Um, Bill Gates, Rex, and I guess Game of Thrones uh, existential feelings about the the how the series ended and if also remember if you email us I won't use your name unless you say it's okay and I don't know that anyone cares but just I will protect your name unless you tell me otherwise so if you if you wonder why I didn't use your names because you didn't give me what's the word affirmative consent I mean seriously mm-hmm. I, I don't want to make an assumption anymore about that stuff uh, Rebecca that's it Jeff, right I think so next week we might have something different a little well. You're going to be traveling. It's BEA time. We're going to see what mm-hmm. we can figure out. I'm going to be um, the woman on the ground. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Probably literally after the yeah. end of a week in the Javits Center. <laughs> <laughs> a woman who literally cannot stand up. This podcast is coming from the floor of my hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Have a happy uh, Memorial Day weekend. I hope you do something fun out there. We'll talk to you later. Have a good one. Bye. <laughs>